0: Hello and welcome to Vet Club. Uh, this is going to be another edition of Journal Club and I'm welcoming back, Hale- I almost said Dr. Haley, you almost got promoted, i um, uh, welcoming back Haley Hickson who has become a regular on on the show. This is This is kind of, this is your thing now, huh?
1: Yeah, I really enjoy doing these, talking in the microphone makes it extra fun as well <laughs> yeah. and so yeah, I have a really great time.
0: Well, I appreciate it because it's been it's been fun, and I think a lot of people get um, nervous about coming on and talking about other people's articles because they're like, I don't know, I'm not an expert, and what if I say something dumb? Right? Mm-hmm. I, I hear that all the time. I, I heard it today, in fact, um, and and it's like, so what? That's part of learning, right? So I appreciate the bravery and the the commitment to continuing to want to learn more. Um, and it's also nice to like have somebody to talk to. <laughs> so yeah. I don't have to sit in here by myself. Um, and also like the other side of it too, is like reading an article is fine, mm-hmm. but talking about it with somebody else is so much better. Yeah, So much better. Agree. Because the other person always picks up things you were like, oh yeah, I hadn't really focused as much on that. Or like I read it, but I like, didn't really focus on that because I was focusing on this other thing. And so um, it's it's just really nice. And that's why people have journal clubs, is because it's way better to talk about things that you've read. Um, With it's like it's the same as a book club. Like people are like, let's you know read where the crawdads sing and let's talk about it because oh my gosh, this is so fun. I mean, not that this was that's a good book, but. Um, <laughs> But, you know, it is, it's more fun
1: to kind of talk with other people. And what did you get out of this part? And yeah. um, so appreciate and def- you coming back. Yeah. Happy to be back. And, you know, definitely as a student it with clinical based articles like this as well, it definitely helps to speak with a clinician who's been practicing for some time and can give me some oversight on the clinical side of things and
0: yeah I mean that is nice sometimes with journal clubs if you're talking with somebody who you know maybe knows a little bit more about a topic than you do but that's not even a requirement like so if you're out there listening and you're like oh I I don't know anybody who's been doing this longer like no start a journal club with your peers too Mm -hmm. because again um you know yeah I've I've been doing this a little bit longer than you have but you still come up with things that I I was like oh yeah I hadn't really focused on that um and it just kind of gets me thinking about it in different ways so journal clubs are are super beneficial um and I think you know that's like one of the reasons I wanted to start this is just to get more people early in their career excited and interested about reading journal articles and feeling less intimidated by it, I think is the other side. It can Mm -hmm. feel, it can feel, I mean, I used to be the same way. I'm like, no, I'm just going to read it in a book where somebody has distilled this down and the stuff that I need to know. And I don't really understand this other stuff. They start talking about stats and you like, I go (laughs) cross-eyed. Um, but you get better at it with practice. Um, and you get even better at it if you practice with other people and have a journal club. Okay. So enough preamble. Let's get to today's articles. Um, so you picked you picked these articles
1: again. Yes, I did. All so, right, tell us about them. So I we I'm on my emergency and critical care rotation. Your um, favorite, right? It's it's been fun. <laughs> no it's, I'm it's kidding. Been fun. You don't have to say that. Yeah. <laughs> and um, we had a patient. I guess it was over the weekend or last week. Um, mm-hmm. but a patient within the last couple of days who was hypoproteinemic uh-huh. and. I think this is a topic that confuses both students um, and I'm sure it confuses just clinicians and everybody of what's the best approach to trying to handle these patients Uh and manage them appropriately. And um, I certainly felt confused after the case. And I think that was the case with some of my peers as well. And so I thought picking the topic of in particular anemia, and kind of how those are managed in a critical care setting. And so, um, you know, I'm trying to become more familiarized with, the different fluid options that we have, and mm-hmm. um, other sort of transfusion options, and so yeah. that was exactly why I picked these articles. Today. I just
0: I love that approach too. So I want to I want to take a moment to just you know remind people listening that like this is my favorite way to to do journals. Right? Is sometimes you've got a list, right? Maybe you're in a training program, you're in a residency, or you're as a student, you've been assigned these reading things, and that's fine. But when it comes to learning, um, it's way better, way more fun if you're like. I have a question and I want to figure out the answer. I have a case and I'm trying to figure out what to do. um, I think you tend to learn better. I think you tend to remember it better because now you have those additional associations. um, And we know with like long-term retention, the more kind of paths you can um, create in your brain to remember. So now you're not only tying this to like this information directly and other things in your brain, but now you're tying it to a case. Mm -hmm. And the case has like an emotional draw too. And so you tend to remember those things better. So if you have a specific question that comes up, that's the, perfect time to find articles. So, um, love that. And, and I like, that's one of the things I like about this particular journal club is that we don't have an agenda or a theme or certain things we're trying to get through. So we get to pick articles just based on what are, you know, the people who are in it interested in this moment. Mm -hmm. Um, so cool. All right. So you decided hypoalbuminemia was the topic. Mm -hmm. Um, what articles did you find?
1: So I picked two and I've been, searching through the Veterinary Emergency and Critical Care uh, Journal in particular. Uh-huh. Um, I start with a wide PubMed search, but I normally, for my last few articles I've been picking, I think I've been getting it from this journal in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first one that I picked was the evaluation of the effects of hydroxyethyl starch 130, 0.4 administration as a constant rate infusion on plasma colloid osmotic pressure in hypoalbuminemic dogs. And this is from um Antonio Borelli at all. Yeah. Um, and so are we okay to just go ahead and jump into this yeah, one? Yeah, go for it. So yeah, this was from JVEC in it was
0: published in 2020. So a fairly recent one. Now this okay, I just have to point this out as a little side note. It was originally received by JVEC by the journal in July of twenty eighteen. That was, so it's up at the, the top, um, kind of left-hand corner, and then it was revised about, so it's about six months later, six or seven months later, they got the revised, and it was um, accepted a little bit after that. So it was accepted in January of 2019. It did not get published until ooh, what month? It was 2020 is its publication date. What's the, I can't remember which month, but it took a while mm-hmm. is the point I'm trying to make. Um, so there's always that lag time, and, and we hope that there's less of a lag time in the primary literature, but... Because there's just so much stuff being done. Um, that process takes a while. So anyway, um, the good news is we now have like e-publication e- before print publication. A lot of journals are moving to that. I don't know if this one was available for that. But um, yeah, so this was completed quite a while ago. Yeah. All right, continue.
1: So I thought this was a good paper of the two to start with because... I actually read them in the opposite order, but I thought this provided a little bit um, more, bit of background on just colloid osmotic pressure and albumin. And so um, just as a reminder, colloid osmotic pressure, the pressure exerted by macromolecules across a semi-permeable membrane, and we have different proteins that the authors discussed that contribute to that, so albumin globulins and fibrinogen but of those albumin constitutes about 60 to 70 percent of the plasma colloid osmotic pressure and so um, they go on to discuss that any disease that can lead to a reduction in plasma proteins particularly albumin is Mm going to potentially impact and decrease colloid osmotic pressure Mm
0: -hmm. and and typically people just call it cop so if you hear cop that's what they're usually talking
1: about because colloid osmotic pressure is a mouthful or cardiac collo- pressure excuse me is a mouthful. Yes, it definitely is. And so, you know, they discuss that measuring and understanding intravascular COP is important cuz when that's decreased, we can get peripheral edema and effusions that develop. And mm-hmm. so um, they go on to discuss that we have artificial colloids that we use, and one of those is hydroxyethyl starch. And um, they reported that that's used most commonly in veterinary medicine when yep. synthetic colloids are attempted. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, while they are sometimes used to support COP, there are reports of adverse effects of hydroxyethyl starch. And yep. um, I think the most notable ones that I've at least heard of even prior to reading this is acute kidney injury and then co- Like alterations in coagulation.
0: Yeah, those are the two big ones that get discussed in human medicine quite a lot. And um, and it's not like you're going to give these to a patient and their kidneys are going to shut down or they're going to start bleeding everywhere. These are these are small, subtle findings that um, in a number of studies have been shown to lead to worse outcomes. Like that's in human medicine. There really aren't any studies um, like that in veterinary medicine. But because of those big and we've I've talked about this on the podcast before because of some of those large studies in human medicine um, the use of synthetic colloids um, like head of starch this particular one is voluvin so it's a slightly different version that's the 130.4 okay. um, that they talk about in the title but um, uh, it, it, use has decreased a lot probably over the last 10 years. Um, And and it's because of those studies that had come out in human medicine. And that coupled with a lack of good studies to say like, this is really helping
1: in these situations. So, okay. And yeah, that was something I was wondering is how frequently we see those, some of those reported adverse effects in Mm -hmm. veterinary medicine. So it sounds like not, not too often. Well,
0: and when you say how often do we see them, that's the tricky part because you don't see them in human medicine either. Mm -hmm. They get found when people do large scale studies with ten thousand patients per arm of the study, right? Right. So, human medicine—they weren't seeing it either. They were using these these products for a very long time as well, and saying, "Yeah, these are working. This is great. This is wonderful." Um, and then, when we start doing these studies to like dig into it, we're like, "Actually, the need f- the if patients that got." Um, the synthetic colloids, there was a higher rate of needing renal replacement therapy. Mm-hmm. There were higher rates of mortality in some studies. So these are small, subtle changes. Now, people have also tried to do some like histologic studies, and they'll look at like some of the damage that you can see like on, on the kidneys, under the microscope, what's actually happening. And so people have tried to tease out the pathophysiology of what's happening. But like I said, these are not major, these are not adverse events that you're gonna recognize clinically. And that's what makes them in my mind so dangerous. Is because you're not going to see them. You're not going to you give. You're not going to give a bolus of of voluvin and then be like, oh, now they you know their creatinine went from one to seven overnight and it was fr-. no. You're not going to see that. It's that cumulative effect and it's those small things that um, again you're not going to take a patient from uh, you know the total everything's totally fine and then it's going to die because you gave volume. But those patients um, you're going to tip the scales a little bit. So you know instead of you know 50% survival, you're going to get 45% survival. Um, maybe over, you know, 10,000 patients. Maybe it's not even that much. Maybe it's, you know, 49.5%. But if you're in that 0.5%, <laughs> that matters yeah, to you. Definitely. Um, and again, it's not just that they have the potential to cause like significant adverse effects. It's what's the benefit of them, mm-hmm that's the flip side because if they're not any better than something else that has a safer profile, then there's not very
1: good justification if there's even a small chance of adverse outcomes. Got it. Yep, that definitely makes sense. And so why this report then? So, and yeah. why are they doing this? So um, they, they mentioned that in vivo studies that are looking at COP after giving hydroxyethyl starch in dogs, they're just lacking. Yeah. And I guess of those that are available, there's conflicting results. And so the goal of this report was to evaluate the effects of hydroxyethyl starch one thirty zero point four administered as a constant rate infusion or a CRI mm-hmm. on plasma, COP, and hypoalbuminemic dogs and they hypothesized that using hydroxyethyl starch would increase the plasma COP and you know now might be a good time to ask I've as I was scanning the literature I'm seeing hydroxyethyl starch and all these different numbers that Mm -hmm. follow and Mm -hmm. I couldn't I tried I couldn't find really what those numbers meant yeah and I don't know how if that really matters clinically um so it 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 kind of
0: The short version is probably not. Um, The longer version is, so what it tells you is the formulation of this particular starch. So it's the molecular weight and then the degree of substitution. Um, So it's a slightly different molecule. If you've, obviously the molecular weight is different. And then, which position on the molecule has been substituted, right? Like remember learning mm-hmm. about carbohydrates and things like that? Yep. <laughs> it's like that, except now we're talking about synthetic products. And so, you know, a 130.4 is maybe different than a 140.3. Okay. Um, now, what ultimately this means is they used voluvin. Voluvin was the um, trade name of the product they were using. And voluvin, so there's of starch, H-E-S, like of like starch with a little uh, trademark after it, uh, I don't remember off the top of my head what its um, molecular weight and, and uh, degree of substitution was. And you can find articles like going into the depth on this. And if you're struggling to sleep, I encourage you to find one of those <laughs> articles. But um, basically, the the argument is that... Um, some types of molecules may not induce the same adverse effects as others. Okay. So you can't, you know, s- people who are like fans, like very pro-synthetic colleagues are like, you can't necessarily compare all of them. So if you're doing studies on Heta starch, um, which is a type of a, a very common tire ty- used to be common type of hydroxy starch. You can't necessarily extrapolate those results to something like voluvin or a tetra starch or whatever. And you'll, okay. you'll notice the the names uh, Heta starch and tetra starch. Those have to do with where they, um, what their degree of substitution was too. Um, so there's probably a five and a four in those ones, those particular ones. Voluvin okay. is obviously the one thirty point four, but tetra starch probably that name had already been taken. So yeah, um, so it's a slightly different formulation. Um, again, at the end of the day, what that means is, you know, if you're going to compare one type of synthetic collide to another and show that this one is safer than that one, or, you know, you might, you might consider something like that. Um, and so it's a little maybe unfair to lump all of the synthetic colloids together, even though I do, I totally lump them all together. Um, but maybe somebody will come out with one that's safer than the rest. Um while also being effective. This particular study, though, was looking at effectiveness on using it specifically for raising
1: COP. Got it. Yeah, I I scanned and I could not find anything that kind of simplified what... It's dry. It's real dry. It's real dry (laughs) stuff. (laughs) And that's okay. (laughs) So, um, this was a randomized clinical prospective study. And I haven't read a prospective study in a little bit. So, or at least that I can recall. Um, And it was performed at the veterinary teaching hospital at the University of Mm Turin. And so, animals were recruited who were greater than one year of age. They had to have been hypoabuminemic. And They then needed um, intravenous fluid therapy Mm -hmm. to restore ongoing fluid losses or to treat dehydration due to various underlying diseases. And so there was a lot of uh, different exclusion criteria. And so I won't go into those in excessive detail, but um, I thought the main ones to note is patients who had cardiac, pulmonary, kidney, or liver failure were excluded. Right. Right. And so, um, ultimately, they were able to recruit 24 dogs, um, and so these patients had um, IV catheters placed. They all had fluid therapy started with um, a crystalloid solution, and um, simultaneously, they got um, hydroxyethyl starch as a CRI. And so, um, one thing that these authors did is the rate at which hydroxyethyl starch was delivered was Different between So they had group one and group two. Yeah. And so 15 dogs um, constituted group one, and those dogs got hydroxyethyl starch delivered at one mil per kick per hour, mm-hmm. while nine had it delivered at two mil per kick per hour. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure at all which of those is standard or what even that rate normally looks like per hour, but...
0: My guess is that something they were doing in their hospital or similar to something they were doing in their hospital. Okay. Um, or, you know, just that other people were, were you know, using...
1: Um, yeah. Okay. And so, um, got it. So they, they married, measured various parameters throughout things like respiratory rates, systolic blood pressure, et cetera. And mm-hmm. so um, they, after they initiated these infusions, they remeasured the parameters that they were looking at at um, hours six, 12, and 24. Mm-hmm. Um, in particular, they were looking at plasma COP um, and serum albumin concentration, as well as a couple of other parameters. Um, they used Osmomat uh, 50 to measure the plasma colloid osmotic pressure. I had no idea what that instrument was prior to this report. And I'm not even sure how frequently hospitals have that. No yeah. Idea. I
0: don't think we have one here. I've had them at other institutions I've worked at okay. and I've used them. So usually did you look into what it was?
1: I, I Googled it, looked at the picture. Um, yeah. It looked like a pretty sizable machine, but I had no idea. Some,
0: it, I don't know which one that particular one is. I'm not that familiar with them, but the ones I've had are little like tabletop machines. And essentially what they have is like a little, uh, diaphragm, a little f- like filter something that is like flexible and movable. Okay, And, um, basically you put, f- you know, the fluid of interest on one side of that and the fluid, um, like your, uh, standard fluid on the other side. And you're basically how, what is the flux? Like what's the, what is pushing against this this little filter um, to try to get what is the pull of this? Uh, what's the oncotic pressure essentially? What is the the pull of those those fluids? And so you can measure and you get a number in um, milliosmoles per liter, typically. Um, so I mean, it all becomes very automated. I- <laughs> I remember um, during my residency having to like take one of these apart to like clean it and get everything <laughs> stabilized. And because I think it was from like, I don't know, the early 1900s or something and like cleaning it out and maintain because maintenance is really important. And obviously, like um, uh, calibrating it is really important. And so you have to go through with like known things and calibrate it. and right. da, da. So, yeah, it's a standalone machine to measure uh, osmotic pressure okay. or, or colloid osmotic pressure.
1: Got it. I'm glad they included how they recorded it because when I started reading both of these papers, I didn't know how people generally measured COP.
0: Yeah. Most of the time when you get those, you get like a, a calculated estimate of these types of things. Okay. Um, but yeah, really for a
1: study like this, you need to measure it for sure. Got it. And so uh, moving just to some of their results and discussion points. So they found no differences in COP measure, measurements between um, the one versus the two mil per kick per hour infusion. Mm-hmm amongst the two groups. And that was over that 24 hour period. Um, And they also noted that there was no difference in COP measurements over time. Right. Um, They did note that each dog responded to the infusion of hydroxyethyl starch variably. And um, if anyone references this, they show each individual dog's change of COP over um, 24 hours. And so I I was just looking through those and there definitely was a lot of variability. Mm -hmm. Um, Some dog had a steady increase some dogs increase then decrease some dogs kind of just were kind of flatline line um, with mm-hmm. maybe one hour or one measure increasing and so there definitely was a lot of variability and I'm mm-hmm. not sure if that's also just typical of when you give synthetic colloids but um, the authors thought that this variability could be attributed to several other factors so mm-hmm. different volumes of crystalloids that were delivered based on what they might have needed for rehydration maintenance mm-hmm. etc and then what particular underlying disease processes they may have been suffering from. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I'm sure those, I'm sure those had an impact, um, on on those results. And so when they evaluated the various laboratory analyses that they performed, um, only group one who was the one mil per kick per hour, uh, showed a statistically significant decrease in the pack cell volume Mm -hmm. from time zero to 24 hours. And, um, they noted that this was unexpected yep. and um, they thought that this could indicate hemodilution, um, but they did um, at another that remark. That would be weird though, right? Yeah, they said it. hemodilution didn't entirely explain that finding because group two received twice the volume right. of hydroxyethyl yeah. starch and they didn't see any hemodilution based yeah. on the laboratory so that parameters. Was probably
0: coincidence, honestly, in that group. Okay. Yeah. These are small numbers. I don't, yeah. It was probably just like, oh, whatever was going on in that particular group They happen to have enough change that it was statistically significant. Um, And statistically significant doesn't necessarily mean that's
1: meaningful, right? right? Like it doesn't make logical sense. So yeah, probably not. Got it. And so um, next they measured total protein concentrations using uh, serum refractometry and group one had no change in their total protein concentration while group two did show an increase at times 12 and 24 hours. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, one point I think they did make in their discussion that was interesting is um, they discussed the clinical utility of actually measuring plasma COP mm-hmm. and they noted that at least per them, that that had been questioned over the recent years. And um, this is not something I was familiar with before, but they discussed that the reason for this is the integrity of the glycocalyx, which I learned and I'll reiterate is a covering of proteoglycans and glycoproteins on the luminal side of endothelial cells. And I suppose there's other reports that... Suggest that the glycocalyx may be the primary factor impacting the movement of fluids between capillaries and interstitium more so than yeah. the plasma proteins that are present within the intravascular space. Yeah. So
0: the glycocalyx is kind of all the rage right now. Okay. (laughs) People are like, Ooh, this is a new thing that we've discovered. Um, so basically it's just this, the inner lining of your vessels. Um, there's a lot more going on there than we used to recognize. And we call that the glycocalyx essentially. And so there's a lot of research, um, ongoing in veterinary and human medicine right now about the glycocalyx and its importance and its effect. And when the glycocalyx is damaged Mm -hmm. and how does it get damaged? And, um, There's so much that we still don't know about Mm it. Um, But some of the early discoveries about the glycocalyx have actually led to um, a reassessment or a um, reimagining, I don't even know if that's the right word, for Starling's forces, meaning that the, the glycocalyx and its health probably has a bigger impact on the movement of fluid and molecules than maybe just the oncotic pressure, which is the original Starling's forces really Mm -hmm. um, emphasizes as well as, um, you know, hydrostatic pressure. Again, those things are still, they still play a role. Um, but maybe we were missing a big piece of it. Um, so that, that part that we always would talk about like, oh, that's probably a vasculopathy. That's where the glycocalyx probably comes in more and the leakiness of vessels may um, may rely more on the health or or not of the glycolic. So um, yeah, it was it, these poor people were like, well, as we were collecting our data, we didn't know about this, and then after <laughs> um, we were trying to publish it, this new stuff came out, like throwing everything <laughs> in, in for, for a loop. So. Um,
1: Yeah, but they got to at least add that to their publication and be like, well, this might explain some of these issues. Yeah, and so they made this whole statement about the glycocalyx to justify a a hypothesis that they had is that the use of hydroxyethyl starch in these dogs may have still helped to maintain colloid osmotic pressure um, in the intravascular space, even though the measured colloid osmotic pressure didn't differ before and after the administration of hydroxyethyl. And so um, I think it was this report that mentioned that some like or maybe they were referencing another report saying that maybe proteins just kind of plug up the space of when glycocaly- the glycocalyx is disrupted.
0: Um, yeah, we don't know. Okay, question for you. Okay. How could they have designed the study better to answer that question? Of whether or not, like, so their hypothesis was actually maybe maybe because we gave um, this hydroxyethyl starch, maybe their COPs maintained reasonably well and they would have fallen, right? Like maybe yeah. they would have dropped lower. Mm-hmm. Um, so how could you have designed a study? That, that, take their overall study. What would you have done differently to maybe try to improve it and tease that and some other things out? I would have added a group that didn't receive hydroxyethyl yes, yes, thank you. It drove me nuts they didn't actually have a control group in this. Um, again, I appreciate them doing the research because they were right. There really is very little out here and actually measuring COP rather than just relying on indirect measures um, is really important. But the question is, is the COP and how it's measured if it's not taking into account the glycocalyx you know, is that a good, is that a good um, indicator? Whatever. We can have a whole discussion about that, but man, it would have been nice if they'd had a control group, just one group yeah. that was getting the fluids and nothing and measure their COP over time. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously what's, what's another thing you would want for this study that we want in every study in veterinary medicine always more numbers, more numbers. <laughs> yeah. A hundred percent. Like this is such a small study. Mm-hmm. Um, and you notice like how all over the place the individual dogs were. Yep take that and multiply it by a thousand and now maybe you can find some trends right now. Maybe you can say there, there's something about this, but all those dogs with all those different diseases, with all those different factors that are impacting that individual dog's COP in that given moment. And it's albumin concentration in that moment. And it's like, okay, in that, you know, all those things. But if you can, um, you know, multiply that by, you know, a factor of 10, 20, you know, whatever you might start to see some things. Now I think their results are still useful Mm -hmm. personally. Um, but yeah, those are, that, that was my biggest pet peeve. I was like, you just needed a control group. Um, <laughs> yeah. that may have been a funding thing. Like they didn't mm-hmm. have enough, but I would have been like, just pick one dose then and, and compare it to control. I would have preferred that. Like just do two mils per kick per hour or one, just pick one. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then just have a control group.
1: Yeah. And so one of the, yeah, no, it, I, I, <laughs> haven't run a, tr- a study like yeah, this, but like no judgment, like good job doing a prospective study. But yeah. <laughs> and so, um, just one of their last closing remarks is that, um, hydroxyethyl starch one hundred thirty zero point four is a new generation of hydroxyethyl starch and older generation hydroxyethyl starches based on previous studies and what's available in the literature may have more of an effect on colloid osmotic pressure. And So yeah. I don't even know how often this one is used over. Um, I don't, do we have that here? I don't know. I don't use them. So okay. <laughs> um, I've been places
0: that had voluvin and um, because when head of starch kind of was like nobody, it, it, it was like, yeah, nobody wanted to use uh, head of starch for a while. The, this mm-hmm. one came out, voluvin, and people were using it for a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, what What's your take home from this? So like, what are you going to do differently
1: or not in clinics? I, based on the, these actual results, I don't see any reason to use it. Yeah. Um, so you're not
0: going to use... Um, voluvin or hydroxyethylstarch 130.4
1: as a CRI to raise with, with the intention of raising COP. Innovation. Yeah. I mean, based on this report alone, I'd yeah. have, I haven't read other reports to mm-hmm. be honest Um, about this topic. Cause this is kind of a new, just a new thing I wanted to look into. Yeah. I don't see the evidence to do it based on what they found. Um, so you're not going to run and be like, "Why aren't we stocking this on our <laughs> shelves
0: and using it all the time?" Yeah, I think that's probably a fair. Yeah, take home for that. Yeah. And
1: so one comment I had, other than you know the lack of a control group and numbers, unfortunately, I think that's always a limiting factor yeah. in yeah. veterinary medicine, which is unfortunate, but yeah. it's the reality. Um, and I think I'm biased because I read the first paper first, and okay. then this paper I read second, and so I would have liked to know how these dogs did. Um, yeah, because you know, at the end of the it's day, it's good to have this prospective study. But at the end of the day, what we're doing clinically is we're trying to get dogs out of the hospital. All we and, care about is did they serve? Yeah. And yeah. so I did think they do it, better. Yeah. I think it would have been nice to have some survival or just outcome data. Um, I yeah. know that wasn't the point of their study. So sure. I don't think it's a limitation per se, but um, I personally, I would have liked. Yeah. To, you
0: were itching for more. You're like, but how did they do?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, cause some of these these patients didn't based on the diseases that they presented with and the fact that they needed all these therapies. I mean, I'm sure they weren't doing well, so would have been nice to have that. But, um, yeah, my summary from this is I don't see a need to use this. um, And that's not what they
0: were claiming either. They were kind of like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Awesome.
1: Um, and so, um, I guess we can move to number two. Um, so the next one is, um, Again, something I've never, never heard of before. I had heard of hydroxyethyl starch, not the 130 0.4, but I haven't heard of cryopore plasma. I think I've heard the term, but I had to Google exactly what it meant. Um, so the second paper is the clinical use of cryopore plasma, continuous rate infusion in critically ill hypoabuminemic dogs. And this is from Christine A. Kohler et al., And um, I also got this from the same journal as I got the other one. So this was JVAC. Okay, now since
0: I said it on the other one. This was published in 2019. It was received in November 2016 originally. (laughs) So that's, I mean, that tells you they collected the data, blah, blah, blah. And then they finally got it ready to submit in November of 2016. It was ultimately Mm -hmm. accepted uh, about six months later in May of 2017. And then it was published in 2019.
1: Yeah, I some of these. It's, it's a delay, right? Yeah, I yeah. Um, didn't, it got
0: accepted, and then it was two years before it was actually published. It's, yeah, it's frustrating for people. I know it's it's tough. Like they get a ton of things coming through, and mm-hmm. that's just how it goes. There's only so many things you can publish, um, you know, at a time. Yeah, but again, e publication,
1: woo, that's, yeah, it's huge. <laughs> and so these authors, again, we start with an introduction, and they um, focus more on some of the clinical con- clinical consequences of low albumin, and so. Um, I guess low albumin in studies has been linked to decreased survival, uh, decreased tissue healing, Mm -hmm. reduced capacity of drug binding. And they did make the comment as well that um, albumin significantly contributes to COP. And Mm -hmm. again, low albumin, we have the risk of edema and effusions developing. Mm -hmm. And so they also brought up the use of synthetic colloids like hydroxyethyl starches, but they... um, they put an emphasis that um, these have no positive impact on albumin concentrations, and then they again made that that mention of associated risk of um, acute kidney injury and other yeah. changes yeah. as well. And so um, they discussed that you know ideally, if clinically we're trying to impact serum albumin levels, we need to use species-specific albumin. Mm-hmm. And I know that I was hoping to, I've been wanting to learn more about species-specific albumin, and because I had a talk with a doctor back in December about this. Um, And so they discussed that fresh frozen plasma or FFP uh, can be given to provide albumin and oncotic support, but you need large volumes to do so in order Mm -hmm. to try and even address hypoalbuminemia. Mm -hmm. And so um, the authors of this report, they previously performed a study and they showed that the albumin content of cryopore plasma is similar to fresh frozen plasma or FFP. Mm -hmm. And they posed that, this suggests that there may be a feasible treatment option for treating hypoalbuminemia and um, at Ohio state, which is where this study came out of Mm -hmm. um, they note that cryopore plasma costs half of what fresh frozen plasma does.
0: Yeah. So what, what is it again?
1: Um, So I based (laughs) on my, Scanning of the literature sure. and, and Google. Yeah, no, and that's um, totally fair. Google
0: is a great place to go for these kinds of
1: questions. So cryopore plasma is, from my understanding, prepared from fresh frozen fresh yes. frozen plasma. Uh-huh. And it's the fraction of plasma remaining after the removal of cryoprecipitable proteins. And yes. so I was like, what are cryoprecipitable what does that mean? proteins? Yeah, exactly. And so it's the, it looks like it's when you have fibrinogen, factor eight, fibronectin, and then um, von Willebrand's factor, most yeah. of those are removed. And so- yeah. So it's, it basically has to do with the process of like how you process. So
0: you get fresh frozen plasma and um, people are like, well, how do I get just the bits and pieces that I want? And, um, precipitate as you, as it, um, the name implies, like as it gets colder, certain proteins precipitate out or they, they, you can get rid of those. And okay. so we can collect those four things that you listed. So the fibrinogen factor eight von Willebrand and fibronectin. If I, if I process the plasma in a certain way, I can separate those out okay. and we call that cryoprecipitate. precipitate because that is what came out at this temperature, blah, 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 whatever. This okay. is That's their process. And then cryopore is just what's left over. We don't like throwing things away, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's everything that would be in fresh frozen plasma minus fibrinogen, factor eight, uh, uh, von Willebrand factor, and fibronectin. Okay. And so if you, for example, had a dog with... Um, uh, uh, vitamin K1 antagonist rodenticide ingestion and you needed to replace factors two, seven, nine, and 10, that is all contained in chiropore plasma. Versus if you have a hemophilia A patient cryoprecipitate would be a great, because what they need is factor eight, or if you just want to replace fibrinogen. So basically we're trying to, just like when we take whole blood and we separate it into plasma and cells, we're like, hey, not every patient needs whole blood. And so I can get more bang for my buck, not necessarily from a financial standpoint, but Mm -hmm. like one donation of blood can give us red blood cells, can give us um, these proteins, those proteins. And it just allows us to have a one donation of blood go a little further Got because it. if we're not giving patients more than what they need right if what what you need is factor 8 honestly in human medicine they, they can even get to the point where like you just have factor 8 like reconstituted factor 8 so the more we can get that down into just what we need and not give the patients what they don't that means i have options for other things Got it. um
1: and when you usually when you do it that way then each component ends up being a little cheaper too. Okay. Yeah, that's I'm glad you explained that so thank you cuz one thing I was I was kind of confused. I was like if this is prepared from fresh frozen plasma and you're doing more processing steps, why is it half of what fresh it's- frozen plasma is? So, and and
0: cryopoor plasma historically has been cheap because as the name implies, it's like, meh, these are the leftovers. Okay. <laughs> and so, okay. so people are like, we're trying to get cryoprecipitate. We're trying to get factor eight or we're trying to get fibrinogen. We're trying to isolate those specifically. And then, but it turns out what's left over also has some good uses. Like I said, in particular, um, dogs and and or cats, if you happen to process it in cats, which we don't usually do. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you had dogs that got into vitamin K antagonists or if a person that was like overdosed on warfarin cryopore plasma is the perfect thing to give them because it contains all the things they need and you're not using this other stuff that can be used in a different patient um but because what people were aiming for was to mm-hmm. get the factor eight they're like oh this other stuff is left over make it cheap whatever we don't really care if we throw it away or whatnot and so it's just historically been cheaper okay um yeah because a lot of times when people request a. a a transfusion of something, they're like, oh, I need fresh frozen plasma. And um, and so they wouldn't necessarily go for the cryopore, but it turns out there's a lot of really good uses for it. And and so w- that's what they're trying to do in this study is like, hey, is there another use for this product um, because it's less expensive than a unit of fresh frozen plasma, but is it providing exactly what we need
1: anyway? Got it. And now I'm just remembering the term cryoprecipitate being used in one of our medicine classes for can't remember. Von Willebrand's or something. Yeah, I think that was, okay. Probably a
0: Doberman that had Von Willebrand's disease. Actually, I think that's exactly what it was. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's what I would guess. So in veterinary medicine, again, we do see occasional hemophiliacs. Um, Again, hemophilia A is factor eight deficiency, hemophilia B is factor nine. So cryoprecipitate would be appropriate for a patient with a a dysfibrinogenemia. So some sort of fibrinogen problem, which we don't see commonly, fortunately. Hemophilia A, or von Willebrand's disease. Those are the three potential uses. Now you can also just give a unit of fresh frozen plasma, but you're giving more volume, more stuff than you don't need. And so if
1: you have cryoprecipitate available, it's more targeted therapy, if that makes sense. Got it, yeah. No, it definitely does. And so these authors hypothesize that abument and uh, colloid osmotic pressure would increase by giving cryopore plasma to their patients. And so, uh, this was a retrospective study, not prospective like our other one. Mm -hmm. And so, um, they skimmed the medical records or scanned, skim sounds like it was too short. So they, they (laughs) scanned the medical records from um, the Ohio state. They probably skimmed quite a bit of those things and (laughs) then got rid of the ones that seemed no good. (laughs) Um, they, so they used the medical records from the Ohio state university and, um, they had exclusion criteria similar to our other paper, including um, patients that lack documentation of hypoabuminemia, which you kind of need if you're looking <laughs> at hypoabuminemia in particular. And so um, these patients had to have um, received uh, the cryopore plasma for hypoabuminemia, not another um, not another justification for it. Right. So, so if they had like a rat poison case that got cryoport, that would not have been, been included in the study. Right. And so um, they wound up having uh, 10 patients who were enrolled. And so um, they went and explained some definitions of septic shocks or criteria or mm-hmm. systemic and Inflammatory response syndrome. Yep. Um, yep. yep. Good. And they they noted that seven patients were septic, the remaining three just met their SIRS criteria. Mm-hmm. And so, um, concurrent therapies that were given, uh, three patients did not receive uh, isotonic crystalloids while they were given their cryopore plasma infusion or CPP. Um, the seven others did receive crystalloid therapy. Mm-hmm. And then, some of these patients, actually, most of them received. Concurrently, hydroxyethyl starch, which is why I thought the other paper might help to start with, yeah. Um, and so one patient received no hydroxyethyl starch, but the other nine did. So the bulk yeah. of them did. Yeah. Um, and um, uh, they started looking at some of the mean values that they obtained. So regarding levels of albumin, um, so amongst their 10 dogs prior to receiving the cryopore infusion. Albumin was about 15.4 grams per liter. And then after their infusion, it was 21 grams per liter. Are those the numbers that you're used to? Um, no.
0: Okay. Yeah. No, I oh, just want to no. point this out. So um, you, what you're probably used to is grams per deciliter. So you just move the decimal point over. So 15 okay. is 1.5. Okay. Okay, so yeah. I guess they just different the international machines. International units, yeah. Okay, got um, it. So yeah, if you go overseas, they'll probably make it grams per liter rather than grams per deciliter, which is more standard in the US. Got um, it. And so it's, yeah, you read it and you're just like, what, these numbers don't make it? They actually do. Just move the decimal point over when they say, you know, so normal... Uh, in grams per liter. Like if you said a normal albumin is three to four, then 30 to 40 grams got per it. liter. Got it, got yeah. it, okay. So it's I'll, an easy conversion.
1: At yeah, least. there's always confusing units <laughs> that you have to deal with Yes. <laughs> yes. in medicine. And so um, for colloid osmotic pressure uh, prior to the cryopore infusion, it was 8.6 millimeters of mercury. And then after the infusion, it was 10.2. And so both of those parameters did go up um, per their measurements that they obtained. And so the outcome they did provide, which... I liked but again the other paper that wasn't one of their, that their wasn't aims. A, yeah and yeah. so um, three so we had 10 patients overall three were euthanized mm-hmm. and that was for various reasons including failure to respond to treatment, mm-hmm. financial restraints, quality of life concerns, kind of the, the typical things we have to, we deal with in veterinary medicine yeah. um, three died of cardiopulmonary arrest. And then four were ultimately discharged. And so four did survive, and they survived today's 30 and 90, at least in mm-hmm. their follow up. And they noted that those that did survive were younger uh, than their non survivors. So the average age of the four survivors was three and a half. And that's compared to 11 and a half in mm-hmm. the non survivor group.
0: Yeah. That's a big difference. Yes. Definitely yeah. is a big difference. And so that was the only statistically significant difference between survivors and non survivors, correct? Right. Yeah, so COP, albumin concentration, cryopore plasma infusion. Well, they weren't really comparing cryopore plasma infusions, but um, yeah, that was the only significant difference between those groups. Okay. Yeah. And so just, which I think is important to note.
1: Yeah, definitely. Don't get old. That's the, <laughs> that's the take home from today's. Yeah. And so, um, the authors stated that their findings did find an association between the rate of cryopore plasma and the change mm-hmm. in albumin after it was, um, cryopore was, um, delivered as a CRI in mm-hmm. critically ill and hypoabubinemic dogs. Mm-hmm. And they suggest, they stated that that suggests that cryopore plasma may be a viable treatment option for hypoabium and so um, in their discussion, um, they also discussed that synthetic colloids like hydroxyethyl starch um, help increase colloid osmotic pressure, but they have no positive impacts Maybe. on albumin <laughs> levels. Yeah. And so um, I thought this was interesting. They, they stated that hydroxyethyl starch may decrease the stimulus for hepatic albumin production. And they stated that that's because extravascular colloid osmotic pressure in the liver is the primary factor for regulating albumin synthesis, which I thought was interesting.
0: It is. Um, but by that same argument, then giving albumin, either as cryopore plasma or fresh frozen plasma, would also decrease the stimulus good for point. Yeah. making your own albumin.
1: Yeah. Right? That, yeah. Yeah. You're definitely right. That's a good point. Yeah. So. So, you know.
0: I don't think that's a good argument not to do any of the,
1: like the body knows better, right? That's like, oh, we shouldn't
0: transfuse this patient red blood cells because then it won't make its own red blood. Yes, it will. It'll be (laughs) fine. Like, and you're not
1: going to be able to correct it to normal. It will still try to make more. I promise. Okay. If yeah. it can, it's yeah. going to try. And so they go on to note, then just continuing on that topic, that the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines, which mm-hmm. I hadn't heard of before this oh, report, yeah. um, and people, um, I'm guessing that's just for people. Yeah. They, they, they don't have them yet for vet men. Got it. And so um, they recommend against using hydroxyethyl starch yeah. and suggest instead using albumin in patients mm-hmm. who prevent with severe sepsis and septic shock. And so- um, that was just a point, a point that they made following that, that particular um, topic.
0: Yeah, th- that's, it's very specific though. Um, so you, you got to be careful a little bit um, with some of, the, uh, some of the statements in the surviving sepsis guidelines. Um,
1: but uh, I'm going to table that for just a second. Okay, so yeah, keep going. What else? Okay. And so um, next part of what they discuss is just that with vet medicine, we we are limited on what canine specific albumin products are available. And Mm -hmm. I imagine they're even more limited for for our feline patients, but- I don't know if that's yep, correct. That's true. Okay. And so we have fresh frozen plasma and the major con of that is you need a large dosing volume, which mm-hmm. I saw, um, I've, I've seen on clinics thus yeah. far. Um, we have cryopore plasma and then you have 5% lyophilized canine albumin. And mm-hmm. they mentioned that there's issue with issues with availability. And yep. I can also that's imagine true. that's probably very expensive, yeah. but I don't, yeah. I can't say for very sure. Expensive. And so, um, they, um, Also discussed that in this study, they showed that cryopore plasma contains higher albumin Mm -hmm. concentrations and has a higher COP than fresh frozen plasma, Mm -hmm. um, supporting its use as a potential treatment option for hypoalbuminemia. Um, They again reiterated that um, CPP costs half of what fresh frozen plasma costs. At their institution. At their institution, yep. yep. And um, they next discussed the nine patients of the 10 that did receive hydroxyethyl starch and they found that the change in COP in these nine patients was significantly associated with the rate at which hydroxyethyl starch was delivered, um, and so and not the rate that the albumin or that the uh, cryopoor plasma was given. Yeah, this is. I I thought. That, yeah, I'm trying to remember now. Um, I thought I just kind of wrote this sentence as what as it was presented. Yeah. Um. Because, but I think that's
0: interesting. Like, but they also got cryopoor plasma, and so it's hard to tease out what was affecting what?
1: Yeah. And actually I have a sentence right after of notes that I wrote after that the change in colloid osmotic pressure was not significantly associated with the rate at which cryopore plasma was delivered. Yeah. Okay. Um, so yeah, I guess. Yeah. So basically they're saying it was associated with the, um, synthetic colloid
0: administration, but not associated with the cryopore plasma. Okay. Which is interesting. Um, cause that also then the, the next step, cause they're saying the cryopore plasma was correlated to a change in albumin. Mm -hmm. but then then you're like okay but the and it was correlated with a change in cop but they weren't dose related like it's just it's messy is really what the take-home is for there for me yeah (laughs) and
1: so my kind of takeaway from some of those points that they were making if if i understood correctly is that given that nine of these 10 patients concurrently received hydroxyethyl starch you can't really draw any sound conclusions about whether cryopore plasma really benefited their cop because you have that other variable that you know influences COP or is said to influence cop and so that was one limitation that they did later note Mm -hmm. um in there
0: but we know that the um synthetic colloid isn't going to impact their albumin concentration right so we we feel confident that the cryoproplasma was impacting the albumin concentration right
1: yes yeah i mean i think so i yeah and so um that was their major discussion points, and my thoughts because um, I like to kind of write out my thoughts after yeah, I read these papers. Awesome. Um, I'm still somewhat conflicted on whether you know cryopore plasma is well. One, if I'd have access to it, if I even wanted to. Let's and, say you do, you have access to it. You're gonna use it, and when? I mean, I guess it depends if you, if it's an ideal setting where finances aren't an option, you have all of these you know tools available for you to mm-hmm. use. And if you have a patient and it, you don't think it would hurt. Um, Ooh. I yeah. know How are you going to know? Um, so do you think based on this
0: one, very small retrospective study, you could say that the cryopore plasma didn't hurt? You know, I think, No, I don't think I can say that it didn't hurt. Well, because six of 10 dogs didn't make it. Yeah, Now, granted, half of those were euthanized. Mm -hmm. So maybe they would have survived if resources hadn't been a limitation. We don't know why they got euthanized for sure, right? Yeah. It was probably multifactorial because they weren't doing well. And, Mm -hmm. you know, people don't really like to spend, you know, tens of thousands of dollars on a patient that's not going to make it anyway, right? And right. so who knows if it, but it was probably multifactorial. Mm-hmm. But six out of 10 yeah. didn't make it. Yeah. Um, now these are sick patients, right? We've selected for sick patients. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know that you can say from this study that it didn't hurt. Yeah. Can you say from this study that it
1: helped? Four dogs, Lee did, uh, yeah. did it help
0: the four dogs or did they survive despite getting the cryopore You know, plasma? they their, <laughs> the age
1: difference was, you know, three and a half versus 11 and a half. Yeah. You know, younger. They might have survived, you know, <laughs> regardless of, regardless of, regardless of whether mm-hmm. you gave that. And so, yeah, you know, some of the thoughts that I noticed is that, you know. All right. May, so it's your
0: dog. Yes. Your dog in the hospital. Okay. <laughs> and somebody else is paying the bill and they have unlimited funds. And the dog your dog is hypoalbuminemic. Mm-hmm. Your dog is seven. We're going to make it right in the middle of these two groups. You okay. have your seven year old dog. Okay. And we have tons of cryopore plasma. Um, you know what? We even have canine albumin on the shelf. We have all of the products available to you. Um, based on your readings of these things, which of those products, if any, would you want to use in your dog that is recovering from a septic abdomen after uh, resection and anastomosis? Uh, he had a perforated GI. For- your dog was naughty and he had a foreign body and he ate it and it perforated and he was septic. But they did the surgery and he's recovering from surgery. What What of these products, if any, do you want and if you have more questions to help you decide um like about the case this imaginary case i've created <laughs> feel free um to ask
1: so no protein losing nephropathy or neuropathy. no like he's otherwise okay. healthy this is okay. an
0: otherwise healthy dog and so you think the reason for the hypoalbuminemia is related to the sepsis and okay. the the gi
1: disease but the acute gi disease that you know if i had the canine the lyophilized albumin yeah. available uh-huh. you know i I, um, I haven't read a report on it to be honest so um I don't even know if that would be um, (laughs) efficacious. I'm feeling kind of, I'm leaning towards the canine specific albumin. I don't think I would reach for the cryopore plasma at this point based on this. I would do neither of them. Okay.
0: Okay. So this is the point I want to make at this stage is we have studies in human medicine that look at, we know hypoalbuminemia is bad. It's bad and okay. it is associated with our worst outcomes. If you have a patient who has low albumin, it has a higher chance of dying than a patient that doesn't have low albumin. Okay. That is a fact. Okay. And we have those studies in veterinary medicine. We have lots and lots of studies in human medicine. What we also know f- pretty well from human medicine is that if you fix the albumin, it doesn't improve their outcomes. Interesting, okay. So low albumin is a marker for disease severity, it's a marker for morbidity. It's a bad thing. But fixing the albumin doesn't fix the problem. You have to fix the reason for the hypoalbuminemia. Got it, okay? So the only reason, the only times that I will ever um, supplement for hypoalbuminemia is if they have consequences that I think are specifically caused by the hypoalbuminemia, meaning they're third spacing all their fluids. They have, you know, not just low oncotic pressure, but like they have edema. Like I can't keep fluid in the vascular space and therefore I can't save them. Um, And so those are situations where I might consider using plasma or cryopore plasma if in place of a crystalloid. Because if I give crystalloids, it just leaks out, right? And there's no studies supporting this. There's no, nobody's been able to do a study to say, if you use it in these situations, it's better. But in my, like, that's what people tend to use, right? Instead of using crystalloids, to for fluid therapy Mm -hmm. use a protein containing a natural colloid right so whether that's albumin whether that's fresh frozen plasma whether that's cryopore plasma I would use any of those I don't really there's not really a difference in my mind we don't have studies to show there's a difference yet Um, so that's what I would suggest but if they don't have clinical signs that I think are specifically caused by the hypoalbuminemia and correcting that number is going to help then I don't bother because it's just treating the number if you want to treat the number just erase it and write a different number (laughs) right Um, I say that all the time um, because what we know there's lots and lots and lots of evidence that says having low albumin is really really bad for you Mm -hmm. fixing that albumin doesn't fix you you have to fix the problem it's just an indicator of disease severity so this is something this is what i feel very strongly about (laughs) and have written about and have um, spoken about because people the number is bad and the bad number is associated with bad outcomes and so clearly if we fix the number we'll fix the outcomes no it doesn't work that way. And there's study after study after study in multiple species that emphasize that. So that's the disappointing part, I think for me. Um, so if your aim is to correct the numbers, yeah, we can do that, um, but so can erasers. Yeah. Um, and so um, for me, it's okay, what's the underlying reason and and how do I fix the problem? That's the most important thing. That's my take home um, when it comes to these, these types of things. So there's lots of cool stuff out here. These were really, really good ar- um, papers, really good articles. Um, and, uh, again, if I had a patient who had clinical signs that I think were caused by the low albumin, I think an infusion of cryopore plasma would be a good choice. And I think okay. this study supports the use of that, but routine use of cryopore plasma in hypoalbuminemic patients, I don't think we have, I think we have strong evidence to say that's not indicated. Okay. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. No, that definitely helps. Yeah. Cause I, yeah. Yeah, I was trying to gather my thoughts, and I was still kind of confused on what I and should.
0: it is, and and we, you know, there's still a lot we don't know, but there's again, there's a lot of studies in people that are like, if you fix the album, and in some studies, fixing the album, they do worse right? Like there are adverse effects, right? You're giving a transfusion. Um, and so, and yeah, there's, um, there are indications for giving like out human albumin to other humans and things like that. And as resuscitation fluids, there's, it's complicated. There's lots more out there, but in general, um, I, my argument, my recommendation to folks is don't go chasing the albumin number, figure out what the problem is and, and chase that down. Try to fix that. Okay. That's my, that's my take home in general. Um, and, uh, yeah, But nice job for those of you that are listening which is all of you um but you can't see how prepared Haley is like she's got her notes written out (laughs) They are color-coded um for all the things like how prepared that you were um you know to talk about everything and uh yeah thanks for thanks for coming back again I appreciate the the commitment uh to journal club and (laughs) and it's been really fun having you and and nice job yeah thank you so much happy to be here so it was fun always always all right so um uh, I think that's it for uh, this. I'm trying to go back. Oh, never mind. I guess we're not going to do our outgoing music. We'll just go back to, um, we'll play some more, what call it? There we go. Articles, articles, <laughs> Why can't I think? Billie Eilish. All right. Thanks, Billy. Appreciate it. <laughs> All right. We'll see you next time. All right.